Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Before I get to my guest today, there is some new merch available for the holidays. So if you're looking for a Christmas gift or a Hanukkah gift, head on over to colemanhughes.org. All right, so my guest today needs no introduction. John McWhorter has a new book called Woke Racism, which is excellent, and you should pause this podcast right now and buy it. So in this episode, we talk about what wokeness is, as John defines it, and whether the woke can be persuaded. We talk about the progress America has made on race. We talk about the extent to which actual racism is still a problem. We talk about Robin D'Angelo and white fragility. And finally, we talk about what a real program of uplift would look like for black America. So without further ado, John McWhorter. All right, John McWhorter, thanks so much for coming on my show again. Of course, Coleman. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's great to see you. And uh, you need no introduction on this podcast, of course, so I won't ask you to give one. So you have a new book. It's called Woke Racism, and that's what we're here to discuss. And I've read all of your books about race, and I have to say, I think this is the best. You really think so? Yeah, I think you've outdone yourself in just having a really timely, streamlined book that perfectly fills a space. Like this is, this book had been around in 2015 when I was an undergrad at Columbia. Mm -hmm. I think I would have felt so totally nourished by this book that I may not have felt the need to seek out so many other books on the same topic because it was aimed expertly. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's perfectly aimed at the problem facing our culture right now in a way that I think your other books for all of their great qualities were not so precisely aimed or who knows what, I don't even know what the problems were really in 2003. I was seven years old, but that's all I can say about this. You are exactly right. Losing the race, the problem was affirmative action and the mm-hmm. way people were talking about it. And I thought that the discussion was very fake, but um, that is one, it's a very rich issue. And two, I was much younger then. And so I hadn't thought about it all as much. And so losing the race, I'm proud of it. And I'm happy to say that, believe it or not, people are still reading it, but Mm -hmm. it's too long. It sprawls. And then winning the race is just the doorstop. I just went on and on and on. And I like using it, but I think of it almost as a reference book. It's trying to make a point that deindustrialization is not why Black America started having so many major problems in the late 60s and early 70s. But I didn't need 400 pages to make that point. Whereas now I'm just getting to the point where I'm in a synthesizing mood. And I've come to realize that a lot of the things that seem so confusing about the way that we talk about race, including affirmative action, including that deindustrialization argument, really do come down to the one basic tenet, which is that If you're not battling power differentials, you are wrong. You're a bad guy. 
And after a while, I started to realize so much of that comes down to this. So many things that there's a siren going by because I live in New York City. That siren is now fading. Although with my luck, it'll stop on this street. Maybe it's an ambulance coming for me. <laughs> no, there it goes. Okay. So yeah, the idea is that you're battling power differentials. And if you're not battling them, and by power differentials, about 60% of the time people mean about race, then you're out of court. That ends up explaining a lot, even though the people in question aren't thinking about that specifically. But I think what you're detecting is that I only needed to spend under 200 pages because I think that there's a surgical analysis or at least a proposal possible. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you, you get that. Mm -hmm. I feel cleaner now than I felt in the year 2000. Yeah. And so let's just dive right into the central theme of this book, which is the, I guess, more than an analogy, but the argument that third wave anti-racism, and maybe you can just define that for people, is a religion in all but the name. What do you mean by that? And what do you hope to accomplish sort of by making that argument? Well, let me start from the end of what you, you ask. I call it a religion, not to make some sort of rhetorical point or to sell a book, but because I really do think that this is a religion. I honestly believe that if a naive Martian anthropologist came down, as I think I put it in the book, and took a look at the way a certain kind of woke person behaves, and then took a look at what's going on in various churches, they would see no difference whatsoever. It's even gotten down to the body language. We don't think of it that way because the people were talking about social justice and hegemony and intersectionality. That doesn't sound religious, but really what these people are doing is a religious product. And one of the hallmarks of that is that there comes a point where you're supposed to suspend your disbelief. You're supposed to stop thinking about logic from A to B and instead listen to a kind of music. And so you see all sorts of things that just make no sense and yet make a certain kind if you think of this as a religious creed rather than a socio-political program. So just to take what I call the catechism of contradictions, this, this race thing that we're encouraged to talk about, where there are all these things that the ally of Black people are supposed to keep in mind that cancel one another out, and yet that's allowed. And if you ask too many questions, you're considered an inconvenience, kind of like pushing too hard on the issue of why does God allow such bad things to happen? So just to take one of the easier ones. You're a white person. You've never dated a black person. It must mean that you're a bit of a racist, okay? You're a white person. You date black people. It must mean that you exotify them in some way. You're a racist. Both of those things are said, often by the same kinds of person. It makes no sense to say both of those things. But it does make a kind of sense in that to make both of those observations is to show that you know racism exists. It might be that a white person doesn't get turned on by black people. It might be that if you really dug into the white person who's dating a black person's mind, there might be a certain amount of exotification. There might. But the thing is, you can't hold those two views together and think of it as some sort of progressive way of living in the world in 2021. They only make sense as being part of what you could call the equivalent to attesting to your religious faith in Christianity. You're attesting that you know that racism exists. And so finally, I want people to know this is a religion because my point in the book is that you can't change these people's minds. There's no constructive discussion to be had. Many people write me and ask, how can I stop these people from jumping to the conclusion that I'm a racist if I express disagreement with them? And I say, you can't. They are going to call you a racist on social media, often on very minor provocation. Our job is to learn to deal 
with being called racist on social media and learn that that's just going to have to be part of being a 21st century person who has certain ideas and commitments. Because the simple fact is they are impervious to rationality on issues of race, not on other things, but on issues of race, because this is a religion. You are asking them to give up the idea that Jesus loves them. How many people can you talk out of that? Not enough to even attempt it for the, for the most part. Same thing here. And so we have to realize that the issue is not breaking bread with these people or trying to make them think in a different way because their view on this is religious. They are interested in showing that they know that racism exists regardless of what happens to actual people who are of a race. You have to work around them and stand up to them, but you can't hope to change them. Yeah, so it's an interesting stance you take here because I imagine you and Glenn and I would like to think I have been responsible for persuading some people from third wave anti-racism to something slightly uh, more moderate. And yet I also totally concede that the religious mindset being unpersuadable is the point. It's a feature. It's, it's not a bug. Mm-hmm. And ironically, this is the kind of book that could persuade someone who was on the fence or, or to some degree open, but it's more of a, you know, relative to your earlier books, a rallying cry or a statement that we have to live with this new religion in our culture right now. And we just have to understand how to coexist with it and how to not be bullied and dominated by it. And so does that represent a shift in your thinking on this? Was there a point where you were more open to the possibility of persuading and changing and and then a point where, where you just said, well, this is now a religion we have to live with? That's an interesting question, Coleman. And I'm thinking now of, um, I ended losing the race. I never thought of this until right now. I ended losing the race with the same two words I end this new book with. Both of them end with me yelling, stand up. That was not deliberate. And so who was I hoping would stand up in the year 2000? I think it's about the same thing. What I'm doing here is I am writing to, as you say, the fence sitters. I think that there are an awful lot of people who are listening to these charismatic people with their big words and their artful sarcasm and you know, using the term social justice. And they're thinking, are these people correct? Is this what I should be doing? especially because I'm afraid of being called a racist on social media if I disagree with them. It's the fence sitters who I'm writing to. And so I'm not writing to right-wing America for you know, various reasons. Most of them already agree with me. There's no point in writing a book to them. They, they already get it. It's to people who are left of center who are wondering whether they're supposed to knuckle under to these people. I think that people like that are persuadable, but there's a hardcore who aren't. So when I wrote Losing the race, I remember thinking this will never reach a certain kind of black person. Woke racism is written to white people and black people, and if anything, more white ones, I hate to admit. Losing the race was written to black people. And I thought, there's a certain kind who I'll never reach. All the people I listed in there, many of whom are no longer alive, it's all kind of dated. But I knew June Jordan is never going to understand where I'm coming from. God bless June Jordan, but she did not like me. And I think anybody who knows who she was would understand why. But I thought that there were people on the fence, especially people later. I frankly imagine people like you. I thought young people might read this and think, hey, I'm not crazy the way I did when I read Shelby Steele. And here, I think that too. So no, I'm not going to get through to the elect. They're going to write nasty reviews. You know, there's going to be all sorts of terrible things said about me on Twitter. They're not going to like how I describe them. But it's the fence sitters who I want to get because I think there are many more of them than we might think. So I want to read a quick quote from the introduction where you describe who your audience for this book is. You have a few different categories. One is the 
proverbial NPR listening, New York Times reading crowd that is thought of as white, but is really, you know, multiracial. And you and I would be as much a part of as we are of the black community. And then you have, you have the second category, which was so beautifully phrased that it gave me goosebumps to read. And this is to black people who have fallen under the misimpression that for us only, cries of weakness constitute a kind of strength. And that for us only, what makes us interesting, what makes us matter, is a curated persona as eternally victimized souls, ever carrying and defined by the memories and injuries of our people across the four centuries behind us, ever unrecognized, ever misunderstood, ever in assorted senses unpaid. So this is... This not is, bad, is it? <laughs> not bad at all. Not bad at all, John. I don't, I don't read my own stuff. But yeah, that's, it's <laughs> interesting to hear that read back to me. Well, it struck a chord with me because this, the curated persona, the sense that for us only, this kind of pose of appropriating the grievances of the last seven generations of our heritage and curating that into a persona gives you this, in certain subcultures and more and more in the culture, gives you this enormous power. It's from the buffet of potential personalities you can be you're choosing from as a young person this has emerged as a really attractive option for people of color Mm -hmm. and it has a very sketchy relationship to the truth of any individual's life and an even sketchier relationship to sort of common sense wisdom about how to be a well-adjusted person which is i've often said that much of what third wave anti-racism or, or intersectionality suggests, much of the wisdom it suggests about how to live your life is as if you asked a therapist who deals, who deals with trauma all the advice they would give to somebody, and then you just flip it on its head. Just like dwell as much as possible on things you cannot control, on the pain experienced by your ancestors, on the way in which no matter how small the world has been unfair to you, magnify them as much as possible and be as suspicious as possible of other people's motives, assume the worst in people. It's just that really struck a chord with me. And um, so maybe you can speak to that a little bit. You know, the best source on that, as I'm sure you know, is Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt's book, The Mm -hmm. Coddling of the American Mind, where they make the invaluable point. It's never gotten around as much as it should have. I mean, this book in a way really should get around as much as guns, germs, and steel, as much as thinking fast, thinking slow. These are really crucial ideas. And what they're basically saying is that what we're taught is the right way to be a Black person. It's partly this kind of college campus language, but especially Black people and maybe Latino people too, is exactly what you would not learn from somebody who's trained in what cognitive health is. And somehow it's different when you're talking about descendants of African slaves. And you know, I'm always reluctant to say that Black people who settle into this way of thinking are seeking power, because I consider it the last resort to accuse people of shifty motives. They usually don't have them. Usually you can come up with some way of seeing them where they think they're doing good, they're innocent, but they're just falling into something about which we must ask some questions. But there is a power, depending on what you call power. And so, for example, if you're going to adopt that view, of your own blackness and that of your fellow black people. It's pretty easy to do academic work, to get an academic job, 
to engage in intellection these days because there exists a huge number of people who are ready to lap it up. So you have a certain power there. It's very easy to get a lot of attention writing from that perspective. And even socially. I remember when I was a teenager going through the usual, you know, kind of acne festooned insecurities and especially being, you know, a middle-class black kid in mostly white private schools. And everybody should remember, it is, this isn't 1942. It's, say, 1980, which is kind of poised between our time and the old time. I didn't know the old time, but 1980 wasn't quite now either. And so I, I used to sometimes overdo it. That will surprise many people. I remember accusing this one white woman of not wanting me. She, she had shushed me because she said my voice was too loud and was supposed to be quiet studying time. And I do have a loud voice, but I was embarrassed because she did it in front of a girl I like. And so I said, you're just doing this because I'm black. And it had a certain power. Thank God she didn't break down crying or anything, but I could tell it hurt her. Yeah, but there was a part of me not long after that that thought, is this the way I want to be a big dude for the rest of my life? Is, mm. is that the way I'm going to be special? Because it struck me as one, small, and two, fake. I knew that woman wasn't a bigot for reasons that are actually quite specific that I won't share. And so you know, it's just, it, it was absurd. But that's not the way an awful lot of Black people feel. But yeah, it's not psychologically, I'm not going to say sound, because then people are going to say I'm saying that Black people are crazy. It is not a psychologically healthy way to be. And yet you and I are up against a whole crowd of people disproportionately represented in academia and the media who sincerely think that staged pessimism is somehow a progressive way to be and perhaps the most interesting way to be a Black person doesn't work. It doesn't work. It needs to be called out. Yeah. So this staged pessimism, it was brought to my mind recently. I was talking to my grandparents two weeks ago and they were just telling stories. It was one of those priceless nights where they just tell all these stories that give a picture of a, a totally different world that was this world pretty recently in the 1950s. And he was telling a story about being in the army and being at a base in the South and going to this kind of party in town on the weekends, they would go into town and they would dance with girls and, and, and stuff, probably to a jazz band. Dance and, with girls. <laughs> and he was the only black person at this particular base. And he didn't want to be the only one not dancing with a girl, but he knew he was, there was just a 0% chance of him being able to cross the color line and ask a white girl to dance. So he had to get his friends to bring my grandmother from DC out to Virginia so that he wouldn't be alone to dance. And it was um, my point in bringing up this particular story and it could be any story. It's so clear that so much has changed in this country. You know, I, I just think of what it's like for my grandfather to watch, to come to one of my shows and watch me effortlessly have friends of all races and have no hesitation to go up to a white girl and say hi and just how different things are. And this was one of my entry points to being fascinated by what the hell is going on with the race conversation, particularly when I, when I got to college, which is why are people pretending that there hasn't been enormous progress. Like what is the source of the false pretense that things are the same or even similar? 
mm-hmm. to, to how they were 30 years ago and certainly 60 years ago. And you're asking the same question that led me to start pitching in on these things because I had the same experience and was just thinking all of these people, many of them smarter than me, are clearly looking at life as a black person in 1990 as if it was 30 years ago. And they're wrong, and yet they're clearly not crazy, and they're not seeking any kind of power, I thought. Mm -hmm. What is it? You know, why is it that we see these things so differently? And what I found was, and this is still the case, a lot of people would tell you that what you're referring to is clearly real, but that we have to talk about, here it comes, systemic racism. And so they would say, well, look at the fact that in a school that requires a tough standardized test, there are practically no black kids in it. Why is that? Especially when the school building is often in a brown neighborhood. Or they would say George Floyd. They would say it's the cops. What I found in my, I think it would surprise many people to know that before I wrote Losing the Race, I did an informal but diligent kind of research, really wanting to know, why do you think that? You know, asking somebody who was very much in favor of pretending that O.J. Simpson was innocent, saying, what leads you to think, Kwame, that was his name, the cops would have framed in that particular way, given the, you know, like really, and listening, you know, just listening to conversations. And I found that it's the cops. The main thing is the sense that the cops are Black people's enemy. If you got rid of that, then a lot of these staged, pessimistic attitudes would melt away within a generation or even half. And so that's why I've tried to write as much as I can lately about the fact that what happened to George Floyd was hideous, but there is also a major problem with the cops murdering white people, and that if we talk about the fact that black men are murdered by cops disproportionately, I think you favor, and I understand this, the explanation that for reasons we can talk about, black men commit more crimes. I tend to say that, but also black men are disproportionately poor, and poverty brings anybody into contact with the cops. But the story that George Floyd is it, that happens to him, but with a white guy, they would have just pushed the same person up against the wall and said some sharp words. It's not true, as we know from the fact that the very white Tony Timpa died under conditions very similar to George Floyd's four years before, and nobody ever heard about Tony Timpa beyond a few local news reports in Texas at the time until last year when some people, and I would venture to say I'm one of them, started calling attention to that case, but it was hardly, hardly unusual. But yeah, a lot of it is, is the cops, but then the cops enables in the definition, too, of that word, the whole temptation of the professional victim complex. And that's where you get the idea that even people like you and me are walking around in eternal danger of being roughed up by the cops for no particular reason. You know, we're supposed to say that. And I'm sure you have encountered, I know you've encountered at Columbia, Black men who claim that and act it out. And I certainly have heard it. And we both also know that that claim is vastly exaggerated, but it's why it's so attractive. The victim complex is attractive to any kind of human being. It's very easy to fall into it in our current climate if you are a Black person. That current climate began in roughly 1966, and here we are still mired in it. So there would be a certain criticism of this conversation as one between two black guys that are highly educated and talk the way we do. And if and when we're pulled over by the cops, the cops are not reacting to every black person the same. They are reacting to signals that you're from the ghetto and so forth. And so we are removed from the experience of being a truly poor black person encountering over-policing and the kinds of concerns that would lead 
someone to become a third wave anti-racist. So why does that not undermine the points you're making here? Well, one thing that's interesting is that the person living in a community like that is much less likely to be a third wave anti-racist than that's somebody That's true in my experience as well. PhD. Yeah. Talk to that person and often, you know, they're inconvenient for the third wave anti-racist because, for mm-hmm. example, they don't believe in defunding the, the police, even if they've been on the wrong end of the police here and there. Often these issues are complicated. But yeah, you and I supposedly aren't the type. But that's interesting because the research that I did, as in being a fly on the wall in a great many places and listening with my ears wide open, I went to so many symposia and talks and clubs, just a fly on the wall. One thing that I kept hearing again and again was people such as Charles Ogletree, Harvard Law Professor Charles Ogletree came out to Stanford and they were having a talk about Black people in the law. I was at Berkeley. I drove down to Stanford. I just wanted to hear. And frankly, I don't, I'm not a legal scholar, but I just thought, I want to hear what these people are saying. And one of the things I picked up was that people like Charles Ogletree were saying that people like him, and here's somebody who's you know living at the top of the world, were constantly pulled over on drug searches. And he didn't talk about whether his speech patterns got him out of getting any kind of summons. But the idea was that this happens to all Black people. Supposedly, both you and I have these stories that we're not telling or something. Whereas I think you and I would both say, you're younger, and so people will say, just wait. Well, I'm 56. How long am I supposed to wait? Those things don't happen to me. And I'm not saying it's because I'm gooder and that other Black men need to learn how to behave. But I'm just saying that the probabilities are not what we're told. Nothing like that has ever remotely happened to me. And it's not all because I have a snotty voice. It's partly because it is exaggerated that to be a Black person is to live under that constant threat, no matter what. Now, if you're in certain kinds of neighborhoods, definitely. And I argued vociferously against the excess of stop and frisk in this city several years ago. I was on the side of the angels on that one. You don't want to overdo it in those communities. But the way it's discussed is that this is a universal Black experience. And it's not. The way we talk about the cops is often more theatrical than real. So I guess another question I have is, how big a problem is racism empirically right now? Good old-fashioned bigotry. Because so in my podcast with Charles Murray, I cited some general social survey, which I, I think is pretty reliable, some results from four or five years ago. And this one result was a little shocking to me. 26% of white Republicans at the time and 18% of white Democrats rated blacks as less intelligent than whites. That's how it's phrased. Mm-hmm. That's one in four white Republicans and almost one in five white Democrats. Mm-hmm. So how worrisome is that to you? And is it that you think third wave anti-racism exaggerates that problem or has the wrong approach to that problem? And like, what do you, how important it is, is it to persuade those kinds of people to be less racist and so forth? Well, here's where I think I may seem contrarian, but I think I'm actually just being normal, which Mm. is that beyond a certain point, I don't care. We're taught to think that whenever you see any evidence of racism, it's supposed to be. But that's where you get into the heretical aspect of the religion. It's as if you're trying to get rid of some sort of bad smell that you absolutely must get out the window. To an extent, when someone is a racist and I can detect it, or if I hear about that statistic, I look down on those people because I have basic human self-regard. I don't think, oh, dear, 
my human dignity is being threatened. No, I was probably just now doing something where my dignity was quite on display, and I'm probably on my way to doing something where I'm going to be even more dignitous. No, it does not threaten my dignity. I'm not sure how perfect a lot of people are waiting for the world to be. Now, as far as the intelligence issue, and of course, that gets into a hornet's nest, what I do know is this. If you see statistics like that, to answer, how dare you say that, is utterly whack. That's what we're taught is the proper response. How dare you say that? How dare you deny my human? No, no. Everybody knows. Like, talk about the fence sitters. Everybody knows that's not an answer. What we're supposed to do is demonstrate again and again that we are as bright as others, including submitting to abstract cognitive tests and standardized tests. And until we can do that, until we can just show it according to the standards that are accepted everywhere else in society, instead of trying to overturn them and pretend that Black people show that they're intelligent by being able to talk about conditions in their own neighborhoods, that that old story has got to go. Until we can do that, there are going to be some people who think that. The way you keep them from thinking that is to show them they are off. And, you know, even after that, there are going to be some people who still think it. And frankly, we will go on our merry way. We're often taught to seek a kind of perfection that I'm not sure anybody ever has until roughly when we talk about the fate of African slaves' descendants in the late 20th century and early 21st. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I think it's part of why we should celebrate the civil rights movement is because we no longer have to care really what bigots privately think in their own minds. And uh, I think that's a diverse country of 350 plus million people from all around the world. And, and let's, let's also be clear here that white people are by no means the only group with a contingent of people within them that have all kinds of beliefs I would find horrid, right? This is, there's nothing white or black about this issue. This is a, a human, you know, every human group and immigrant groups from around the world have all kinds of beliefs I might find unrecognizable or, or, or noxious. And I don't spend that much time thinking about their implications for me if they don't in fact have implications for me, right? And so to see white anti-black bigotry as a special case that we need to be so continually on the, on the lookout for. I can understand why, given our country's history, we have a special concern here. It makes sense. But as time moves on, I see that as just one more example of human irrationality that, that I'm not going to spend too much time worried about if it's not having direct consequences in terms of policy and, and so forth. You know, like, as time moves on, and especially as the white majority of the country slowly shrinks, does it, will it make more sense to stop treating white people as a majority for whom sort of a different set of rules applies? And, and I know this is not, this is Eric Kaufman and, and other political scientists who study this will say it's, it's not really happening as quickly as you think because for various reasons, but for the long term, this may not look like such a white majority country forever. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what our end goal is as a nation for dealing with that, because a lot of the arguments that justify some of the double standards around white people and black people only work insofar that at a basic sense, white people still feel like the default American. And in many ways they are. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I'm curious, do you think much about what America looks like in the long term future? I do, although I think that in the middle term future, we have to always remember that there's a certain kind of person who will listen to this or not listen to this. And their response is it's not who's in the majority, it's who has power. And remember that to them, that word power is the word, it's the concept. And so even if there are fewer white people, if they still hold all the chips, then it doesn't necessarily matter that there aren't as many of them as there used to be. And for me, the question just becomes, okay, let's say that they have the power and that their attitudes about black people are not exactly pristine. What does that have to do in the connectionist sense with solving the very real problems that black people have? And it is stunning to me how little the people I'm writing about are encouraged to just think about that logical postulate. And so, for example, talk about disparities. Many more black boys die, frankly, at the hands of one another every summer in pretty much all of America's big cities because of turf wars between gangs. There's a disparity between the number of black boys and white boys who die of a gunshot wound. Now, what do you do about that? It's complicated. There are people working on it. But what do white attitudes about black people have to do, do with it? Now, some people might laboriously think, well, if white legislators more sanguine about black people's intelligence and dignity, then they'd work harder to pass. And then, well, pass what? Is anybody under the condition that, for example, the NRA is going to be penetrable to slight shifts in attitude along those lines? If white people felt more guilty, then it would help those black boys in Chicago dying in the hundreds every summer because the white people would, and nobody could fill in that blank. It's just that we're trained to suppose that this spraying for white, subtle, racist attitudes is going to have some major effect on society. It's a detour. It's because it's a religion that says, show that you know racism exists, but is much less interested in show that you're interested in changing the lives of people who are of a race. It's a detour, and it's the detour that's attractive because there's a certain self-gratification in it, but that means that it's lost sight of what actual social politics are supposed to be. So why is this religion so attractive? Because if you're white, you feel like you're on the side of the angels, and you feel like you've gotten something figured out. What a pleasure there is when you've got something where you turn the key and the door opens. You're doing an algebra problem or you're trying, for me, it's, you're trying to learn a language that's hard and certain aspects of its grammar seem kind of arbitrary. And then you realize, well, actually you can look at it as really just, it's either one thing or two things, or maybe there are a few exceptions and then that's it. It actually comes down to a couple of things rather than being 50 different things. You've got it figured out. You have that. And you also have a sense that you have a wisdom that other people don't have. Who wouldn't enjoy that? It's, I completely get it. If you're black, as we've said, you get the pleasures of being the professional victim, where it only works if you're not a victim. That's why no one thought this way in 1935. But once things are okay, maybe not brilliant, but once things are okay, you might massage that sense of yourself as somebody who labors under this miasma of racism that's not anything that you can quite describe, but I just feel it, as I'm sure we both often heard. And it's because it gives you a sense of legitimacy, it gives you a sense of purpose. And in both cases here, you have a sense of group membership. You're part of this group of white people who are allies of black people and who, quote unquote, get it. If you are a black person, especially, this is why it's so concentrated among educated black people. If you have some feeling that you've become less black, that somebody's going to tell you that you're leaving real black people 
behind that you're not quite doing the right thing, such as you know getting an Ivy League education or deciding to be this as opposed to that. You play the bassoon, or Lord forbid, you play the trombone, something <laughs> like that. You know, if you're doing that, then maybe are you not black? Well, one way that nobody will even consider taking your black card away from you is if you're on the barricades pretending that America is still a racist rot of a nation. All these things are very attractive, but when it comes down to leaving black people in the lurch as a result, then I feel like I have to speak out. If all of it were just that it was fake, all right, you know, again, life isn't perfect, but this ends up retarding what could be a true pro-black agenda in this country. And under what's turning out to be a rather feckless one, but under a democratic administration, when I started writing this book, I could feel it. I knew Trump was going to be out summer of 2020. And I thought, who's going to come in is not going to be another Republican because he's going to be a hard act to follow. I thought, we're about to have a Democratic administration where a little something might get done. And instead, we're going to have people running around talking about intersectionality. I wanted to try to head that off. So (laughs) we'll see what happens. So why do you describe this as woke racism? Because this stuff hurts Black people. Racial preferences that place Black kids into institutions over their heads, that hurts Black people in a way that socioeconomic preferences would not. Policies that discourage suspending boys who are violent in school because they're black. And if you do it disproportionately, it means that you're a bigot because it couldn't be that the black boys, just for reasons of poverty, happen to be more violent. Means that other black kids are getting beaten up and having their grades lowered in school. Pretending that whenever a black person shows up intellectually, they're brilliant and that only for us whole fields of inquiry need to be turned upside down and frankly made easier because Jim Crow, because redlining, because microaggressions, is hideously condescending and therefore qualifies as a microaggression in itself. One could go on. That's the racism in question. Nobody who espouses things like this is being deliberately racist. Bill de Blasio in New York City is not being a racist in wanting to get rid of standardized tests and gifted programs because black kids tend to have trouble at that level of the game. He's not being a racist and being unable to imagine that the solution might be to ask how we get the black kids better at these things. However, it has racist impact. I sound like Kendi, but of course, you know, I mean something different. And so, yeah, these, it's an unintentional kind of racism. And it comes from these people who see themselves as woke, as, as ahead of the curve. It is a woke racism. And somebody needs to blow the whistle on it, who frankly is not white. That's what I'm doing. So another aspect of this is just outside of the policy domain, just in the social, the domain of social and interracial relations, how we treat each other. The prescription of someone like Robin D'Angelo. I'll just take one example that I found egregious from her book, White Fragility, which is she makes this point that white people should not cry in the presence of black people. And this is probably in the context of one of her critical race theory infused diversity training sessions where a white person, for whatever reason, is moved to tears by something a black person is saying or just otherwise moved to tears, which is a very, you know, very vulnerable thing to do around somebody. But the idea is you're not supposed to cry around black people because it invokes a historical memory in us of other instances where white tears led to lynching, say a woman that is falsely claiming to be raped in the year 1920 and says a black boy raped her and then he gets lynched. 
her tears led to his death. And therefore, in the year 2020, 2021, to see a white woman's tears or a white person's tears is triggering for us. Mm-hmm. It's like this kind of argument, aside from being ridiculously out of touch with just what most black people would feel, like that's just like a very strange boutique feeling for any, I don't know, I think probably a single black person that actually would say that of themselves. Like I'm triggered by white tears, Mm-mm. like betrays how little she sort of knows black people. <laughs> but beside that, it's, that's precisely the kind of dynamic that exists between a parent and a child. It's like when you're, you can speak to this, I don't have kids, but you know, when you're, when you're a parent and you get some horrible news, you often don't want to signal how tough this is in front of your children yet, because they may not actually be able to sort of handle, you want to perhaps deliver them the news in a way that, you know, say grandma died or something. You Sometimes you don't, you don't always want, you don't want your sadness to become their sadness necessarily. You want to shelter, you want to filter your emotions. You want to use your rational mind to filter your emotions and decide so that you don't have a negative effect upon the child, right? Whereas the child is never expected, the child is just expected to live out its emotions as they seem. It's never expected to think twice or thrice about their emotions. And that's, in a nutshell, the difference between a mature and an immature human being is the ability and the expectation to decide when and where and in what context to show certain emotions. Mm -hmm. And it's very troubling to me that the essence of the distinction between a child and an adult is what someone like Robin D'Angelo wants the relationship to be like between white people and black people. Yeah, that book is full of howlers like that. I'm sure that on this one, she probably got that from one black person. That's a type Mm -hmm. who would have told her that that's how we And and that's exactly the type who would show up at her, you know, trainings. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, with that book, it's just one thing after another. Another greatest hit from that one is the idea that... Um, everybody thinks that Jackie Robinson was the first black yeah. baseball yes. player who was good enough. Yes. <laughs> That's what everybody, Nobody everybody thinks. thinks that. <laughs> I remember highlighting that in the book and I was like, what? No, nobody thinks that. I remember what I do. I fold pages down a little bit, a corner on the top and my copy of it still has that. And um, yeah, that's the book is full of that. And it's truly an insult to us that anybody would go through that book and think of it as essentially one of the testaments of what I call the elect Bible, because the book is full of things like that. And yeah, you put your your finger on it. She's encouraging us to be treated like children. And she thinks, she wouldn't put it that way, but she's thinking that that is the way it should be because white people have been on top for so long that we need to be given a break. But she's not thinking of us as human beings. Is that the way you want to treat somebody throughout their entire life so that they never learn how to deal with what life is going to hand them in ways that are other than what's going to happen in some race seminar that somebody like her is, is supervising. She doesn't think about that. She's thinking about us. You get the feeling as if we are these people who neither are born nor die, but that there's this black kind of arca person. And that it's just this one person who's been living for 400 years. And therefore there's this just desserts that we need to work out for that person. Who's never going to die. And it's a shame because it's really, it is very weak thinking. And it's been a while now since that book has been a runaway hit. And if you look at her interviews, what she says in response to what you and I are saying is that we're Uncle Tom's. She thinks that we're sellouts, that we're just saying what we say because we want white people to pay us for it. 
And her response is also, well, they haven't been doing what I'm doing. You know, have them tell me, I've heard her say in one interview, no, what they've been doing for the past 30 or 40 years, I know more than they do. And of course, the question is, Robin, what do you know? What is it that you know? Because if you know something, can you prove that it's had any effect? Presumably, if we're completely out of court and questioning this stuff, then your seminars have created some sort of measurable change. Somehow, America must be a better place. But from the way you write, America is still the same cesspool it was in 1950. Everybody's just more polite. So if your career is so authoritative, then show us what effect you've had as opposed to you having done the seminars. And notice, I'm not saying you haven't been paid for them. Anybody deserves to be paid for their work. But just you've probably done, you know, 60,000 of these seminars. And to what effect? And if you can't really say what the effect is, then it means that one of the basic predicates of woke racism is somewhere near correct, which is that there's a difference between kabuki and play acting and virtue signaling and actually making a change in the real world. And notice that we're hearing that these diversity, equity, and inclusion sessions don't work well. But I'm not sure what the response to that is from the people who happen. I'm not going to say make their living. They're not doing it because of the money. But people who stake their entire career and sense of identity on participating in those programs, what do they have to say? And the thing is, they're not going to say anything. And that's why I say in woke racism, we have to work around these people. We have to stand up to these people. We can't expect them to give up their entire psychosocial basis for existence. Nobody can do that, including us. So speaking of the difference between real change and virtue signaling, you have a pretty streamlined set of recommendations at the end of the book for how we could solve the kinds of problems that the elect and really all people of goodwill are worried about with regard to racial inequality and and so forth. So can you just take us through those a little bit and explain each one? Yep. It's pretty simple. The war on drugs destroys black communities. And I think people should note that, yes, you can call it a kind of systemic racism. It destroys black communities. It has for 50 years and it needs to go. And if there were no war on drugs, for various reasons, black men would be much less likely to encounter the police, especially in situations that often lead to being maimed or killed. And that's one of the reasons. And another reason is that if there were no war on drugs, it would become much more natural for even underserved black men in underserved communities to seek legal work after high school, in which case our society needs to make it as easy as possible to get solid vocational education. That should be concentrated upon. We must stop standing in front of, for example, poor black audiences and saying that everybody needs to have the opportunity to go to a four-year college. They should have the opportunity, but that should not be thought of as the default experience of being a viable American person. Vocational school is important. And also, reading needs to be taught better in schools. Part of the reason schooling is so useless with so many people around the country, and this is people of all colors, is that reading is taught wrong. And if you're not teaching people reading in what science has proven is the way that it works when the kid doesn't come from a book-lined home, disproportionately, because more Black people are poor, disproportionately, it means that Black kids are disproportionately hobbled from ever being able to truly enjoy school by being taught to read in ways that only work for somebody named Ethan or Jason who comes from a book-lined home and whose parents are professors or management consultants or diversity, equity, and inclusion seminar leaders. You need reading to be taught properly. Those three things, I think, would turn Black America upside down in a generation. There would still be racism, but the idea that you have to get rid of racism completely, I repeat, 
is something we're taught, but that I'm not sure has much to do with how most Black people leading real lives feel. So that's my program. Yeah, it's a really good program. I didn't, you're the only one I've ever heard about the phonics versus whole word reading. That's the uh, weird one, but yeah. Yeah. But the other two, I know in, in many European countries, there's a culture of vocational school being very easily accessible and valued culturally as an alternative to four-year college, mm-hmm. not even necessarily as an, as an alternative, as much a sort of first option for people because yeah, we do have this kind of sanctity of, we sanctify four-year liberal arts colleges in a way that is a little strange from the point of view of most other countries in the world and many of our other peer nations. Yeah. And it just really isn't for everyone. And it, it ends up really... Um, Never has been. Yeah. Uh, it just does not... For, for someone like me, it, I had this skill set and natural inclination towards those kinds of things. But that is not the default human setting by, by any means. And as far as ending the war on drugs, that's something I've really always been in favor of. Like, for, for instance... The killing of Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. When uh, I remember I, I went on Bill Maher to discuss this, and I was trying to make the point, which was not entirely welcome. This kind of thing, if we ask what is the cause, the deepest cause of Breonna Taylor's death, it's like, okay, it could have been a different cop. It could have been a cop with any kind of probably sort of biases who one fired upon, fired back. But if we look at what unites a case like Breonna Taylor and Derek Cruz is, is the other one that I can call to mind. He's a, a white guy that was shot in the face on a drug raid because the cops thought he was reaching for a gun and they recovered like some marijuana from the property and shot this poor guy in the face. It's like the common thread here and the deep source of these kinds of things is the war on drugs. It's the fact that we send cops into these situations where misunderstandings are inevitable because it's life and death at stake for both sides. And some people felt that I was dismissing the particulars of the case, which is really not my intent. I'm trying to find the deep source of many of these issues, the actual policy change. But instead of the conversation being about that, it was this spiritual outpouring of grief for Breonna Taylor connected to a condemnation of racism but very few people took the lesson, what should have been the main lesson, the most useful lesson, which is end the war on drugs like it's an emergency to do so. Yeah. And what you were seeing was a perfect demonstration of what may seem like an anodyne description of how these people work, which is that what must be front and center is the racism. And so you see what happened to Breonna Taylor, and your focus must be on how those cops felt about Black people. And it's not that that's not an issue at all, but you and I are of like mind on this. I look at something like that and I think, how in the world are we going to keep that from ever happening again? And most people think, well, we have to keep that cop from being a racist, or we have to keep the cops from focusing too much on black neighborhoods. And I'm thinking, yeah, good luck. How about something that's a little bit more pragmatic and can happen faster? And it seems to me that get rid of the war on drugs and those cops wouldn't be there anyway, and Breonna Taylor would be more likely to be alive. That's considered the improper way to think, not because we're wrong, but because we're not focusing on the racism. And for you to get in trouble during that discussion because of that, I, I'm trying to recall who, who the other person or persons were, is an indication of this mode of thought. 
And the people in question, I'm sure, did not think of themselves as part of a religion. But to the extent that you rendered yourself obnoxious by trying to think of a practical solution that would also save her life because you weren't interested in talking about the racism, that's the religion I'm talking about. And if it means that something that really could save a Breonna Taylor's life is off the table because it doesn't allow us to keep our fingers in white people's faces about racism, something's wrong. And I think that we're more like the old-time civil rights leaders than many people seem to think. All right, so final question. What, if anything, are the elect right about? Hmm. Or are they, are they, by definition, the people that are wrong about things so that... Uh-huh. Um, is there, in other words, maybe a better way of asking it, what is a, are there any blind spots for people like you and me that you think, and probably the audience of this, that we ought to be more aware of? that the elector may be more sensitized to? That's a really fair question. And it's the sort of thing that we ought to always think about. You know, where are we wrong? You have to, you have to consider it and be truly open to caving sometimes. But I would say on this, woke circa 2015 had plenty of things to tell us that maybe mm. one overdoes it sometimes. Maybe one is not always as pragmatic as one might be. But I think that, the what used to be called politically correct and then for a brief shining camelot moment was called wokeness with a smile all of that is real i was raised with that my social work teacher mother what i'm criticizing which is the kind of wokeness that's mean no i don't see anything that those people are right about to the extent that they agree with nice woke people about various things sure but the kind of person who feels that being Dana Carvey's church lady is appropriate when it comes to dealing with race issues? No, no, I can't go with any of their program. I think that they've unwittingly gotten caught in something that's more about them than about Black people. Mm. And I hate to say that when there's a white person of this stripe, it's the same thing. I think we need to start always looking out the window and thinking about people out in the real world rather than virtue signaling to each other and pretending that that's somehow a necessary prelude to doing real things. It's a dangerous thing. Well, on that note, it's been a great conversation. I implore everyone, if they have not already bought the book, Woke Racism, to buy it and to ask your friends to read it because it's like a, an arrow perfectly aimed at problem that I and you, dear listener, probably care very much about. So I really cannot recommend it highly enough, and, and I cannot thank you enough for giving me your time. Of course, Colin. And thank you very much, and I'm glad we had this conversation. Thank you very much. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.